This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. While most of the focus this week is on the British Open over in England, the U.S. Junior Amateur takes place in the heartland of America here in Andover, Kansas. For more on the event, visit usga.org. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck, back for another podcast for The Knockdown. It is Open Championship Week, or the British Open, as some of us call it, in the less learned parts of the world. Um, our guest this time is Michael Bamberger, poet of the Lynx land, frequent guest on this podcast now, which I love. I'm not sure how you listeners feel, but uh, anyway, Michael, thanks for being here. Aye! <laughs> you just scared them all away with your bad Scottish accent. <laughs> I mean, who's going to listen to this now and take it seriously? Although, I do recall there was an open where you and Gary Van Sickle spent most of the week conversing strictly in your Americanized Scottish speak. I, yes, we have, but we've get, we gave that up when John Hogan told us we didn't know what we were doing. John Hogan's a legitimate Scotsman who was sitting one row in front of us, turned around and gave us the eagle eye. <laughs> so, Michael, it's, it's been noted many times in many places how much you love Lynx golf, Scotland, the Open Championship. What is it about Beagle over there that, that speaks to you so much? I love the wind. I love no trees. I love hard ground. I love man, their manly bunkers with the rocks still in them. Um, I love that the game is so unpretentious uh, over there, especially in Scotland. Even at courses that, uh, even courses with the word royal attached to it, as uh, we're going to see this week, uh, anyone can get on those courses, not at any time but with a little bit of advanced planning. But to speak nothing of, almost every town has a golf course, and we've played a bunch of them over the years. Um, that is essentially uh, open to the public. There might be private clubs, and you've written about this, that American golf should take that model of a private club that's accessible to the public at, at, uh, at, at different times. Uh, the long days, the fact that we can, uh, we can be in the press tent and on the golf course at uh, 5 p.m. and on a 6 you know, start around nearby at 6.30 and be done comfortably. Uh, just live everything about it. it. You know, one of the great pilgrimages in golf is to Macrahanish, and uh, which is on the, the southwestern tip of, of Scotland. And if one rolls up to the bar there, there's, there's a lovely quote from you that's printed in large lettering. What is the story behind that? Have you seen that yourself? I have. I didn't realize that. Uh, I was surprised to see it. I didn't even know it was there. Uh, uh, I played the course uh, a bunch. Uh, my wife, Christine, and I were there in 91. I'm thinking at least a week, but it might have been closer to two weeks. And I played it a bunch, and I really loved it. I wrote about it. I'm not by any means the first person to write about it, but but it did. But what I wrote about it did get some... It, it got spread around a little bit, and... Uh, and then subsequently, I joined the club. Uh, I didn't really do it on my own, but someone put me up and I joined. And then I wasn't there for uh, for probably 20 years. And then John Garrity, our colleague, and I, <laughs> I was paying, paying my dues faithfully yeah. all those okay, years. That was my question. Yes. So then I explained that to a uh, to a local member, and you know the Scots are careful with their with their pounds. Uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, I've been faithfully paying my dues for uh, 20 years here, and uh, this is the first time I've been to the course uh, since I joined, or since I first visited in '91. And he said, that's a very good deal for us uh but yes i don't know how that uh, quote got above the bar but uh but it's true although i think we both feel this i think every golfer feels this i love macrohanish when i'm there but then i have a go to a golf course called ely i love it there when you and i played royal burkdale one night with uh with john garrity i loved it there so um 
as uh, Ed Rendell said of uh, quarterbacks, uh, Ed Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania, said of quarterbacks in uh, Philadelphia, we fall in love with our quarterbacks very quickly, and we fall out of love with them just as quickly. I, I don't fall out of love, but I fall in love quickly. And, <laughs> and that's part of the joy of going back. You get to do it all over again. And they're different on different days and different, different nights. And we've had fun. We've played a lot of windy... 8 p.m. golf. Yeah. 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 Well, and the, the story of our round at Burkdale is quite funny. This was a few years ago when um, the Open was being played somewhere else in that part of England. Um, and I was, I was flying from California, and my flights got hung up. My, my clubs got separated from me along with my bags. And I wound up getting rerouted to a different airport in London. I can't remember where I flew into or where I was supposed to fly into, but I was four hours away. We had like a 4 p.m. tea time. I jumped you thought in my you were going to land in Manchester, but you wind up landing in Heathrow is what I remember. That's, that's, that's exactly what it was. Good memory. Bomb down to, to Burkdale, show up. All I'm wearing is like jeans and, you know, tennis shoes. And John Garrity was kind enough to let me borrow his clothes, although it didn't exactly fit. How tall is John, would you say? Seven at, at feet tall? At his prime, probably 6'8". eight. might be 6'6". Six, six now. he's tall. I, he's like Manu Bull of golf riders. And... Um, Borrowed some some clubs out of the shop, and we just had the greatest time. And that, I think that you need, you know, if I was if I was somewhere in the United States and my clubs didn't make it, I would never go play. Yeah, you know. But it's yeah. a great way to get over jet lag, just to be out in the wind. Yeah. When you're tired after a round of golf, uh, you know. Even, well, I played 36 many times over there, but uh, but it's a different kind of tire. It's not that trudge tire. It's like. You feel alive, tired, and you sleep really well afterwards. It's like you've left it all out there. You're grinding every shot. You're, I mean, there's a lot of thinking that goes on. If you know, if you're 145 yards from the hole on an American course, you just hit an eight iron, ride the flag. You don't worry about it. You know, over there, there's about seven different shots you can hit, all the different tragedies. Um, I mean, it really. I think your brain is activated in a different way. Yeah. You can run it. You can run it up to. I mean, this is a cliche, but it's totally born in truth. I mean, it's a running ground game there, and that's why older people can enjoy golf longer there than they do here. And the greens and the tees are almost always close together because they're built with no thought of a golf cart in mind. They're built as walking golf courses. One of the first times I ever played golf in Scotland, this would have been like 1997. In fact, it was the first trip. It was early in the trip, and we teed off, and. I believe it was Royal Aberdeen. There was no one behind us. We were kind of late in the day. And crisscrossing ferries, we saw some guys on the first hole. And we're maybe on like six or seven. And before you know it, they're on us. Like, uh, where did they come from? Yeah. It was four guys. But they were playing an alternate shot match, uh, which is how they do it over there. And so maybe on like 10 or 11, I can't even remember, we get to a par three and we kind of wave them through. And w one guy hits it to about two feet on this super long, difficult hole. The next dude leaves it, you know, 40 feet short. He comes up, his partner knocks in the putt. They, they took it, they, they played the hole in four strokes and it took him about six minutes. And it was like, wow. Yeah, and you know how much discussion there is between partners? None. None. Because they're never together. Yeah. They're always moving on to the next. Maybe on the putting green, they're together for about a minute, but they're, yeah. they're always in different spots. And I, I mean, I've observed this now a little bit. There's no, come on, pards, we need this putt. Like, yeah. everyone knows what's happening at all times, but it's unspoken, which I think yeah. is cool. Yeah. Yeah. So... What was the first Open that you attended? First Open was 85. It was at Royal St. George's. Uh, I was uh, I was caddying uh, that year, and I caddied for a, uh, a man named Jamie Howell, who was a young professional, who was on his honeymoon. 
and uh, he qual qualified a, a course next door that had also been an open course uh, way back when called Royal Sinkports. I love Royal Sinkports. Oh, it's so good. I, I once played with, with uh, Mike, Mike Donald, my uh, great friend, uh, was over qualifying for a, uh, a British Senior Open. And so he came down and was watching a little bit of golf. Well, he came down and was going to watch some golf at Royal St. George's, but we played Royal Sinkport so before we did that. And Mike is super profane, so we'll have to bleep out a little bit here. And he said, uh, I don't know what the fuck they got over there, but there's no way it's harder than this fucking golf course. <laughs> it, is, it is so hard. It's a joke. I like Sinkport more than Royal St. George. I do, too. Yeah, I do, too. I think and most people do. Yeah, and it's. I love how it's just squished right against the sea in that clubhouse, and it's hard. It's so physically hard. Well, the, the yeah. Darren Clark Open, we played Singapore's like three times, and there was a restaurant there, maybe like around the Shuckers Inn. The, exactly, like we, it was so beautiful. You just play till dark, and you just walk over there and eat. I'll tell you something about that pub at the Shuckers Inn. The uh, in '85 on the Wednesday before the uh, Open, Big Jack was there with Barbara, and uh, and two of their friends, just with all the locals and people. You know, they raised a glass to, to Jack, but nobody asked him for an autograph. Nobody pestered him, but he was just having fun. And That's cool. uh, yeah, I'll always remember that. Uh, Ernie has that quality. Yes. Uh, yeah, we've seen Ernie out and about a lot yeah, during Open Week. Yeah. I think Dustin Johnson maybe did before he won the U.S. Open. I'm so sure uh, now. Yeah. But, um, but many don't. I mean, I've never seen Phil out. I've never seen Tiger out. Yeah. I seldom, I've seen Rory out, but not very much. Uh, but anyway. But they're they're missing right out. It's just part of that week. Yeah. It's a different field. So your first open, 85, that's where 85, you were. 85, and then the, uh, uh, so this Jamie Howell qualified, and then the, uh, I believe it was the second round of the 85 open was the strongest wind I've ever played where I didn't play. I was catting, and the wind was literally so strong coming up of uh, 14. Our group could not walk. The wind into us was so strong that <laughs> you couldn't penetrate the wind. We just stopped. And it. And if I have my holes numbers, I may be off here a little bit, but I don't think I am. But there's this little canal that runs through it. Uh, and you're supposed to be, you know, I think they call it the Suez Canal. And you're supposed to be 100 yards over the Suez Canal. And Morris Bembridge, who was, he was a short hitter, but he was a good player. But he had driver, driver short. Of the Suez Unbelievable. It was, it was a joke. It was a joke. It was so hard. I caught a day like that one time at Turnberry, not playing the Elsa, but I think it was called the Kintyre. It was the oh, second yeah. course, which has now been blown up and redone. Yes. But, um, and I went out and played by myself, and I was laughing hysterically because it was the same thing. I was hitting seven irons, 280 yards downwind, and into the wind, it was a struggle just to make it up the fairway. Like, it was, it was I mean, it was fun, but it was crazy. Did you, uh, now, was that a night game? No, afternoon. Okay. And you played by yourself? Yeah. Oh, but on the other course. The there. other course, That's yeah. a nice, charming course. Uh, yeah. I once played, this seems like it's not true, but I promise you this is true. One, one of the years when the Open was at uh, Carnoustie, I covered golf through the, pretty much through the end of the day, probably not quite the end of the day because they can play so late there. Um, was staying in St. Andrews, tried to get some golf in, went to the starters hut, whatever you might call it. There was nobody there. So I just went to the first team and started playing. I played one through 17 by myself on the old course, never being held up by anybody <laughs> until I get to 17, where at this point it was about 10, 30 night. And there, there was a group yeah. struggling to finish on 17 and 18. And then, then I quit. I just, I went over that wall and went literally into the jigger in. I left my uh, bag, bag right there. But just one quick note about that round. I literally got lost at one point. I was like, it's confusing where, out there by the loop. By the loop where the yeah. new course runs into yeah. the old course. And I think I was right on the point of like going over to the to the new course, but the new course, by the way, uh, you know, 
it's like 120 years old. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, my phone rang, and it was Tom Doak, the golf course architect, who had been a caddy <laughs> at uh, at St. Andrews uh, in his uh, undergraduate youth. And I told him exactly what I was looking at, and he told me exactly where to go and what to do. He said, well, there's a mound here, and then there's a little dip in there. You know, hit a six iron through that, over that <laughs> dip. And he was exactly right. I did exactly what he said, and it was exactly right. It was fun. Well, so... I want to say 2004, I went over to St. Andrews around April's 1st. And back then, I don't even know if they still do it, you could play the old course reverse. Oh, right. Because what people don't know is that through about the 1950s, you could you could play the old course counterclockwise or clockwise. It was laid out just like that. And once the Open Championship became a TV thing and people saw St. Andrews, they wanted to play the course they on TV and they kind of settled on the current routing. But... It is incredible. So you played it backwards. So in other words, you would start on basically one tee, but you'd be playing to the rolled hole green. Uh-huh. And then you step off. one tee and a 17, 17 green. green. And then you step off there and you play to the 16 green and you just keep going backwards. So, uh-huh. you know, all the iconography is backwards. Uh-huh. You're hitting, you have to draw it around the old course hotel instead of right. fading it. And um, so you, once you play 17 green, then you step up to your right. To your right. And, and do you make up a T or is there a T? No. Are you there, playing maybe the second T? I think maybe you use the current so the 18 T maybe. Oh, the 18 T. Yeah. To the... That, that part I don't even remember yeah. crystal clear. But you know what? It was better backwards. That's wild. It was wild. And, so you know, some Did of the... Did you tell Watson about that when you toured? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, he, he was Watson intrigued. Watson done it? No, he hadn't. Which what I was, was that experience like? What tell, well, remind us what you did. You Watson was coming back to play his final open, and yeah, before, yeah. So I flew over to St Andrews, and we just walked around the old course together. You know, people were playing, so we, we couldn't we couldn't hit oh, any shots. He didn't play shots. He didn't play shots, but it was cute. We you know we, we walked down like maybe 16 fairway, um, and there's a fence there, and it, it, it's kind of it looks like what you see on a ranch. There's it's not barbed wire, but it's it's metal, thin metal, uh, and they're probably about 12 inches apart. And the fence is relatively high. Obviously, how is this guy, you know, 65-year-old man going to get over the fence? He kind of bent the metal and shimmied right through like a wrestler going into the ring. And he saw me. He's like, I grew up on a ranch. No big deal. Huh. You know, it was, it was a cute little moment. And so we get out there, and he starts tapping his toe on the turf. He's like, this turf, there's nothing like it. You know, he, he just went right into it. And it was cool. So I had him walk me through a bunch of shots, and uh, including... Um, you know, the ill-fated two iron on, on the road hole that, that cost him the open that when Seve beat him. And it, it was pretty neat to walk on the old sod with, with Tom effing Watson. You may know the USGA for their 14 annual championships, which are widely regarded as the ultimate tests in golf. But there's more to the USGA than just golf competition. It's much more than that. There's a group of scientists at the USGA that are working specifically on a program to help golf facilities more efficiently reduce their reliance upon water. They've coupled with an innovation team to launch a resource management app that works to help course superintendents better allocate those H2O resources. In the end, they believe it's gonna create a better experience for all involved. That's the course, the management staff, the pro shop, even you, the golfer. The USGA is also working with the RNA in Scotland to modernize the rules of golf. You've probably heard about that in the past couple months. But the USGA wants your help with it. Visit usga.org to check out the list of proposed rules changes that are expected to go into effect January 1st, 2019. 
That's where you can share feedback with golf's governing bodies online. And now, back to Alan Shipnuck and Michael Bamberger. Uh, Watson won his first Open in 75, and I was absolutely glued to the TV. It was so neat. And then, when was Duel in the Sun? Was that two years later, 77? 77, yeah. You know, and that's that's as good as it gets. We've watched a lot of great golf. You and I have watched a lot of great golf together. We've seen Tiger at the height of his powers. That was great. Nicholas in 86 wasn't there, but I watched on TV. That was great. But to me, nothing's ever been better than than, than 77. And Turnberry, really, or should I say Trump Turnberry, but Turnberry then, uh, I don't think there's a more beautiful place on earth than that Turnberry Golf Course. No, and then to, it's spectacular. It is spectacular, and I haven't been there since. The, the, the new holes look great. I mean, for all the um, the ways you can critique Donald Trump's taste, he knows his golf, and with they, they improved Turnberry, which was already one of the world's greatest golf courses. So uh, I can't wait to go over there and see it. Yeah. And in fact, the Kintyre course is, is now it's it's got a it's unwieldy name. It's it's the um, King Robert the Bruce course, oh, right. but they put a couple holes on the ocean, and I mean that looks significantly upgraded. So just another reason to get back to Turnberry. But so you mentioned Watson. This is a good segue because the last Open he won was at Birkdale in '83, and you look at the Wat the, the winners there. It's Peter Thompson, it's Arnold Palmer, it's Johnny Miller, it's Tom Watson. I mean, there's something about this course that brings out the best in the best, and yet. It probably is not one of my favorite open venues because it's it's very it, it's a little bit like Muirfield. There's it's a great golf course, it's a great test, but I don't I don't feel the magic there. There's not the the heaving dunes, there's not the quirkiness, there's not the blind shots. Like that's the stuff I love. I know what you're saying, and it's curiously I it, for spectators, St. George's has that in spades. Yeah, it's got the heaving dunes, yeah. and the players don't like it. I think it's right. great. Uh, well, that, and I love that part of England. That's it. The see, at, at that level, the players want to hit a shot, and they want the ball to land exactly where it's supposed to land. They want to see it, and they want to know what the next shot looks like. So they they. I mean, I think Nicholas's favorite course on the road is Muirfield. Everyone loves Birkdale amongst the elite players because it is more straightforward. You know. I would, I would say you should have an open at Cruden Bay with all the you know blind shots and funkiness. But it would drive those guys crazy. So I, I think part of it is what we're looking for is a little different than what yeah. they are. What Nicholas once said uh, about the Open Championships, because someone said, oh, you hate, Saint, you, hate, you hate Royal St. George's, don't you? And he said, no, I would never say that. And I, I believe he probably wouldn't. Uh, he said, but I w what I would say is um, uh, I like them in, in, uh, in descending order most from the northernmost, which would be Carnoustie. Uh, to the southernmost, which would be Royal St. George's, of, of all the ones that are being played. Although, aren't that, that, that's a very sophisticated answer. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, we uh, it, just a quick note about Jack. So, Jack's very loyal to hotels, and uh, he would say for years that the Prince of Wales um, in uh, is that Southport? Is that the little town um, uh, right, right on the uh, the main street of uh, of Southport, which is pretty much where Royal Birkdale is? And there was a uh, English heat wave, and uh, uh, and there was no air conditioning in the Prince of Wales, of course. Uh, so he opened the windows, but it still, and it was it was Big Jack, Barbara, and uh, and their daughter were, were were sharing a room, which is unimaginable today. Yeah. So Big Jack opens the windows; it's still not cool enough. So then he opens the door to get a cross breeze. Um, uh, do you know the story? No, I and, can't wait uh, to hear it. Uh, to get a cross breeze. So that's working a little bit, but now he's worried because he's got the clubs in the room. He's a little worried he's going to come steal the clubs. Oh, he, he so, like left the room with everything open? Yeah, so now he sets up this elaborate system of suitcases where by which 
if a, if a burglar or a thief or someone is going to come in and take something, they're going to have to knock down the suitcases and wake up Nicholas, and he's going to, you know, <laughs> he's going to keep his clubs. I remember being that in that Prince of Wales hotel. I was with my wife and uh, my in-laws. We were eating dinner there, and uh, must have been '91, and um, they were visiting. Christine and I were there, and we had spent the whole summer there. And uh, they came over, and uh, Norman was at one table, and Nicholas was at another table, and Trevino, I think, was maybe with Nicholas. Jacqueline was in there. It was just so cool to see all these heralded names together, and uh, it was romantic i mean i was younger but uh and maybe it happens today but we were just, just discussing this a little earlier we don't see it that much anymore uh, uh you, you, you want you want to mention something about um that little pub that we've been to in uh in the middle of the royal sinkport squares yeah yeah have we discussed that or was that in an earlier session <laughs> no we have discussed in it. this session yeah okay well, let, I got let, let's just spill it so <laughs> dear listener we had a, a little malfunction we, we started taping this podcast and my memory card filled up on the recorder and my memory so, card obviously is filled out yeah. as well i knew we talked about it. i didn't know yeah. it was session one <laughs> The lost tape session. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's deja vu. No, this is a hot mic, so okay. don't make any uh, don't make any disparaging remarks about anyone or anything. But um, yeah, no, it, 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 that is one of the things about the, the the open week that we all get into is if if you, know, if you were at the U.S. Open and you'd have air conditioning in your room, you know, you'd go down and, and you'd complain and you'd storm out and find another hotel. Whereas you just have to put up with it. You just got to deal with it. Whether it's it's the bad water pressure in the shower, it's the slow Wi-Fi, it's the dreaded English breakfast. You know, there's a lot of things you have to overcome even before you get to the golf course and for the players too. And I, I think that's just part, it's just, you just go with it. But one of the things that's neat and, and I think some of the credit, if not a lot of the credit, has got to go to Tiger for this who doesn't get credit for a lot of things he should get credit for no top player would ever even think about not going to the Open Championship, which as recently as the 80s was actually still a common thing. Yeah, uh, yeah a lot of times, Scott Hoke, a lot of those Scott guys skipped Hoke it. And Curtis missed a bunch, and uh, I know there are others who aren't just coming to mind right now, but uh, but now I think it's very clear. And of course, part of that is that, that our U.S. tour has become so much more international. Yeah. And, you know, now people don't really believe this, but to a Henrik Stenson, I would think that that Open Championship really is the most important championship to him. Uh, oh, more I think, so than I the think Masters, every... definitely more than the U.S. Open. Yeah, um, the Masters I mean, is great. The Masters is cool, but the Masters is really a thing for 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 American golfers, and of course the U.S. Open as well. But the Open Championship is the Open Championship, and you can make the case, and many do, that if you're only going to win one, that's the one they want to win. Not many American players will make that case, but I think I think almost every European player would, and I think a lot of players from Asia might as well. Yeah. You you were at last year's open and it was it was it was a great shootout and went down the final few holes. Do you have do you have a favorite open that um, that you've covered that, that really when when you think about the essence of the open? And so many come to mind. I mean, you know, Watson Stewart sink yes. at Turnberry really springs to mind, uh, and just the intensity of it and. Uh, uh, Neil Oxman, uh, Watson's caddy, he's a close friend of mine. We had about a three and a half hour dinner the night before the final round, and I could see that he was right on edge because this, yeah. look, let's call it what it was the opportunity 
to do something that might be considered the most significant athletic accomplishment ever. Yeah, it was, to win at 59 years old, it's insane, actually, to think about it. Indeed. Uh, and uh, but anyway, uh, so that that would be the one that would that would first bring to mind. But uh, how about just? You know, I'll always contend it's better that he lost because it, it just became so tragic and wrenching, and it's kind of. That's that's the essence of Watson, right? He never did anything the easy way. No. He's he's just that hard ass Midwestern stoicism, yeah, grumpy old man almost. Like I, I'm sure part of him appreciates that he lost because it was just a reminder that life will always kick you in the teeth when it can, and golf especially will. And and, and that's and Scottish golf and and links golf especially especially. Uh, there's a lot of quirks uh, that that fall into the hole that make it different from from our American game just a quick note about uh, about uh, Watson not winning that year Sandy Tatum uh, his great friend who died this year at 96 I think uh, uh, loved Watson I once asked Sandy uh, if you ever talked about that uh, Turnberry uh, open with uh, with Watson and Sandy said no it's it's too painful for me <laughs> yeah that, that's a good line and it's funny because I mean I have talked to Watson about this when we were in St. Andrews and he contends that he lost the open by a foot, that he hit into the 72nd hole the exact shot he wanted to, and he landed exactly where he wanted to, and only later did he realize there was just the slightest, tiniest little downslope. It wasn't flat. It caught the downslope, and it, it, it propelled the ball forward. Crazily and, so. That, I, that, is, uh, that is not hyperbolic at all. I was standing right there, and I've seen it on tape many times. I mean, I feel intimately connected to that shot because yeah. as we've experienced when you're so close to it I, what he's describing is exactly correct yeah. but at the end of the day he lost because he's 59 the reason i say that is because when that shot went bounding over the green and was in the slightly fluffy lie and he tried to use the butter in his prime yeah. he would have taken on an eight iron or pitching wedge or a hooded sandwich or something and either hold it or hit it stone cold tapped in and won the thing you know it and he well, knows it you can even go further where he could have taken a little more club and tried to fly the ball closer to the hole on his second shot, that would have brought the possibility of going long more into play. I think he, you know, he was saying, I don't want to go long. I'm going to hit a little, a little less club. And if I, if I wind up, you know, 30 feet short, that's okay. And then he, he maybe got the bad bounce. But, if, you know, I, I think going long was always in his mind as the worst case outcome. And then he wound up doing it and he just, he played with fear after that. And well, he was spent completely yeah. spent. You could see that in, in, in the playoff. Um, but you know, it brings up an interesting point because people say, oh, we hit the wrong club or oh, we hit too much club. And it's not a true statement. And the reason it's not a true statement is, and this is the essence of Link Golf, and this is why Nicholas and Watson and Tiger and Hogan and Peter Thompson and others, but not many others have been so good at it. You hit any club you want, almost any distance you want, but you've got to hood, open, shut it down, shorter backswing, punch it. There's so many different ways to play shots. And um, so Watson could have hit 8-iron, 9-iron, pitching wedge, 7-iron. It's just how do you want to play the shot under those conditions? I think he played absolutely the shot that he wanted to hit. And I, I totally believe. But one of the joys of Watson is you can believe what he says. Uh, although, curiously, about that second shot into 17 that he was describing uh, to you when you were walking the course with him at the 84, uh, 84 Open, yeah. uh, I have always believed that Alfie Files' his caddy talked him into the club and that Watson accepted the counsel and, of course, regrets it. And I've pressed Watson to the degree you can press Watson on anything, which is not very much, <laughs> if that's true. He's told me that 
I'm wrong, which is, you know, <laughs> typical. And, and he'll use those words, right? Yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, he's a reliable, he's a reliable witness for his shots. What will we witness at this week's Open Championship? That really is the question. Um, I feel like, Michael, we could talk about this stuff forever, but I'm afraid we might lose some listeners. So maybe this is a good point to sign off. I know you don't like saying goodbye. So if this podcast was satisfactory to you, just nod your head. (laughs) He nodded. Okay, well, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm quite sure that this ongoing conversation that Michael and I have been having will continue in in the coming weeks, months, years. Um, For now, thanks for listening. Uh, We do appreciate your time. And we'll be back with some more good podcasts to knock down as soon as we can. This is Alan Shipnuck signing off. Thanks. Thank you.